Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 229 being recorded on Thursday, July 23rd, 2020. That's a lot of twos. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Well, listeners, in this episode, we are going to focus on some news because last week we just couldn't jam it all in. Um, and then more news has happened since then. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, Jason, before we jump into that, you've had a busy week uh, educating the world on some very various topics. Tell us how that went. I think uh, you spoke at NRF Next. That's that's right. Um, so for people that might not be familiar, there's been a long-time digital show about e-commerce uh, arguably the first uh, trade show about e-commerce called shop.org. You and I were both board members when it was an independent organization. It got bought by NRF. And over time, shop.org has morphed into this digital conference called NRF Next, which of course was canceled this year because of COVID. So Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week, uh, they hosted the virtual version of NRF Next. And I, I got to give a presentation about the future of platforms. The future of platforms. Well, don't tell us much about it because these are the kind of things we love to turn into deep dives. But yeah. give us a teaser. So yeah, um, what's something that's going to blow people's minds but without telling us what it is? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> monoliths are, are, are dead. Mm, the end of the monolith. Just say no to monoliths. And if you either listen to a later deep dive we'll do or you watch the segment, the the digital version is free. So you can still go register and all this stuff is available on demand. So if you're interested, you can still go watch it. And I unleashed a new web architecture for future e-commerce sites on the world. And it's it's called Jason's Secret Web Architecture, hashtag JSWA. And it, it got a lot of play on Twitter after my presentation. So just saying. You could you could be on the ground floor of Jeswa if you if you uh, uh, either catch our deep dive or watch the the segment. What do you think's better, Jeswa or Jwat? Jwat's way better. Okay, um, got it. Yeah, I saw some Jwatting in a uh, uh, when some protesters broke into a, an Amazon store. Yeah, they, that's called the Jwat. Uh, oh, okay, that's yeah. Well, they did just walk out. They did. Someone was like, the, the Amazon app's going to charge their phone. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think it works that <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, was the Amazon ghost or looted? I didn't see that. That would have been like ironic, I guess. I don't know if they got in, but it was pretty clear they were working at it. So um, the one on Pike Street, I, I think there's one on Pike Street. I saw them. Yeah. There was video of them smashing yeah. in a window and yeah. jumping in. So I, I saw a lot sure of anti-Bezos graffiti on some Amazon ghost doors in Seattle as well. Mm. Controversial. Yeah. I'm sure Jeff's uh, up late at night worrying about it. Yeah, I, I'm sure his security detail is all over that. Um, so <laughs> slightly off traffic. So uh, Inner of Next was three days. Uh, it was really well attended. Uh, there was a pretty good diversity of topics and uh, sessions. And uh, yeah, so if, if you have some spare time, 
and you you didn't watch it live, you should totally go register and watch some of the content and especially watch the future of platforms and make sure that you you stay till the end and give it a five star review because former ghost uh, guest and friend of both of ours, Rob Smoltz, did another presentation and we're having a friendly competition about who gets better ratings. Yeah. Can I just skip to the reviews? Yes. Like, can I like, okay. Right, In fact, well. I'd appreciate, like you should both do that and hit pause right now on the podcast and go give the podcast a five-star review on iTunes while we're talking about reviews. Asking for a friend, do you think they've, uh, that they would stop a little script from going and doing that a million times? Yeah, uh, I think you can only you have to like log in and then you can only vote one. So oh, I, yeah, gosh, that's no fun. Yeah, okay. I don't. Um, I, I uh, so I historically have done well in those ratings. Um, I think the bar must be really low, but uh, I, I hold. Let's Rob Schmaltz. <laughs> yeah, I, I hold the all time record for an NRF event ratings uh, because I did a. a a session about mobile usability. In my last example, I I did an evaluation of the mobile rating system for the NRF. So I, I I finished the presentation by having everyone go to their phones and go through the process of giving me five stars. I thought that Genius. was smart. Yeah, yeah. I felt very proud of myself. And then you just savaged it after that. You're like, was that the worst experience ever? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I tricked enough people into voting for me that I, I got a good score. Nice. Did you yeah. get to see Rob's session? Uh, I did watch Rob's session. I didn't get uh, full disclosure. I did not watch it live because it was right before mine. And uh, they like you to be on in their green room and and all that sort of stuff. So I, I didn't get to watch his session live, but I watched it later and it was good, uh, even though I'm not. I'm kind of cynical on the topic. So he was talking about AI and, uh, Mm. you know, he had some interesting use cases and stuff. But I I feel like AI is just so overused um, that I I, my my uh, guards go up as soon as people start pitching me on an AI solution for anything. Yeah, I was this is a kind of a wacky sidebar, but I'm sure you've seen this GPT three stuff that's come out which is this natural language um, platform from this open AI uh, initiative, but it's got kind of a, you know, a significant, like a factor of 30 more words that it's been fed and that it's knowledge. So people are feeding it all these past things they've done. And then it spits out stuff. And I was, I was going to talk about this offline, but we might as well do it on the podcast here. I was thinking we have what, 200 and, 29 now episodes that we could feed this thing and then maybe it could just do the podcast going forward. So a little, little side project for you to look at. Yeah, it could be vastly better. Uh, on, in a much more narrow scope, Adobe has this cool, uh, really scary app where you feed it audio samples and then you can get it to say anything you want in that person's voice. And Yeah, so I think we could marry those together and we could have a Jason bot and a Scott bot yeah. and then you and I could just go to the beach and retire from this whole thing. Yeah, well, so obviously there's... That'll be our mastermind project for... Yeah, coming. way more audio from either of us than you need to train this engine. But like, think about all the guests we have too. Like, We have this beautiful repository. We could have a lot of fun in this industry. Yeah, all right. Sounds good. What other uh, what other talks did you catch? Uh, that so were interesting. I, yeah, I tried to catch a bunch of them, and uh, and it, they were pretty diverse. Um, it you know, depending on your area of interest, you could lean different ways. Uh, but there uh, was uh, one of the original VCs behind Salesforce talking about like investing in the cloud and how um, 
difficult that was at the time, and they were rolling the rock uphill, and obviously that investment worked out pretty well for them. So I I found that interesting. Um, there there's a variety of sessions about you know how to deal with the crisis and leadership in the crisis and some of those things. Um, on my day on uh, Tuesday, there there was an interesting session about the death of the cookie. So uh, several of the browsers have already blocked third-party cookies. So Safari and Firefox don't allow third-party cookies. Chrome is the most popular browser in at least the U.S. right now, and they still allow third-party cookies, but they've announced that they're going to phase them out over the next two years. So that fundamentally changes a lot of advertising tools that you can use on the Internet if third-party cookies don't exist. Um, And so there was an interesting conversation about uh, what would change and what wouldn't and what alternative means people might use and just, you know, sort of thinking how you you prepare for a world in which there's no third-party cookies. Yeah. Yeah, that's worthy of a deep dive right there. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's that's that's, uh, like the livelihoods of a lot of people, so I, I get that. Um. Yeah. So, like, well, you want basic stuff to work, right? Yeah. You want as a user, I hate logging in all the time. So, yeah. yeah. And so, part of it is going to drive me to apps because that's why I like apps. They keep me logged in, and websites now are less frequently keep me logged in. So that's a. uh, I again, we won't deep dive in the platforms, but part of my conversation on platforms was, you know, what are the priorities right now in picking a platform. And one of them is obviously mobile, and I talk about the apps versus um, native native mobile web uh, uh, thing quite a bit. So there's there's an interesting uh, topic there. Um, the, uh, there was a good session from Dollar Shave Club talking about how um, they're they're heavy users of um, split path testing, A/B testing, and and uh, how they they do a lot of. Um, uh, behavioral experimentation on the site. And so they shared some of their learnings and winnings from that. And then uh, I think Spotify was the last session on Wednesday and sort of talking about uh, how uh, voice is the future and podcasts like the Jason and Scott show will rule the world. Oh, I like that. Um, did you talk to them about selling for a hundred million, getting some Rogan, Rogan money? I'm trying to play hard to get so we could surpass Rogan money. Okay. So I did Sounds that like by not strategy. not approaching them at all. I thought that was pretty clever of me. Well, it's better when they when they come to you. So we'll 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 keep waiting. Yeah, yeah. So that was NRF next. That was maybe more time than we allocated for that topic. <laughs> um, but let's jump into the week's news. Yeah. So this week, uh, you know, I love to say it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without some Amazon news. But today, this time, we're we're oddly going to skip Amazon news because we're really holding it for next week. So a week from today, when we're recording this, uh, Thursday of next week, they are going to have Q2 earnings. And um, everyone's watching that with with bated breath because there's a lot of interesting data we'll talk about in the rest of the show that's got people. There's a camp that feels like, you know, expectations have run a little bit ahead. And there's another camp that says, no, uh, they're just going to just destroy the numbers that are out there. So it's going to be really, there's really a pretty big split on where the, you know, not only Wall Street, but other pundits feel like Amazon's going to come out. So we're we're not going to cover that this week, but there was some pretty interesting news today um, from Google Shopping. And uh, Jason, why don't you walk us through some of the highlights of that? Yeah. Uh, So before I talk about today's news, I'm going to go back in the hot tub time machine to April um, and they, they, uh, exactly. uh, we have the <laughs> highest quality sound effects on the Jason and Scott show. That's the hot tub firing up. Exactly. I like it. I, I, oh, I could do this too. 
That was substantially better. That's some some <laughs> legitimate fully work right there. Okay, okay. Cue me up again. Go. Let's <laughs> jump into the hot tub time machine and go back to April. Awesome. So uh, back in April, Google made an announcement about Google Shopping that they would essentially let anyone that wanted to provide a feed have free ads on the Google Shopping platform. Um, and so at the time, it was, there was this – it was really unclear whether they that meant – you would show up in Google Shopping for free, but that you would still be obligated to share a take rate with Google if someone uh, acted on that ad. And there, were, there was a lot of conversation about that. And Google was a little vague about their answer. So then fast forward to July. And today Google made an announcement that they are discontinuing taking a commission or a take rate on all of Google Shopping. So if, if you have an ad on Google Shopping and someone checks out – uh, directly on that that platform, you you pay no commission to Google. So presumably, the only way they're going to monetize Google Shopping is with uh, embedded ads that they sell in the Google Shopping experience. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting because so there's a new so not only do they have a new leader for Google Shopping, but um, there's this one change where. The shopping, kind of the commerce team and the ads team have been separate. Um, and that's, you know, allegedly when, when, uh, apparently that's made it hard for the Google commerce team to gain any traction because, you know, it's very easy to look at any Google result, I'm sure, and say, well, if you put this thing out there, you're going to lose this many dollars from, from, from the ad platform because the ad platform is so robust, right? Um, so, uh, so another change they had made, I think, um, earlier this year is there's one executive that, that owns both. Um, and then they made it a, you know, a priority for him to really accelerate the commerce side. So, you know, one reading of this is finally Google, you know, there, there's all this data. We've talked about it probably a thousand times on the show that shows that, that more and more consumers are not going to Google to start their shopping journey and learn about products they're going to Amazon. Um, you may have some updated stats, but for, you know, for the longest time, you know, Google was ahead and then Amazon surpassed and, and, um, you know, I'm sure that's still the case. Uh, I think the last data I saw showed like 65% of people started Amazon, 35% at Google. Um, do you have any new data on that, Jason? Uh, kind of. So I have to debunk the whole thing. We The real answer is we don't know. Um, yeah. Most of that data is published from surveys. And uh, originally, most of it came from this Bloomreach survey. And all these surveys are of 2,000 people. So they asked 2,000 people, when you go shopping, what website do you go to first? And 65% of the 2,000 people said, I go to Amazon. Um, and so, spoiler alert, uh, people are never right when they tell you what they do. Like, if I go look at the data from their browser, that's not what they do. Um, and so even if we try to use panel data, there's some big panels out there of millions of users. It's it's impossible to, to define what a a a shopping mission is versus some other search mission, right? So you 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 have to come up with some huge definition of what searches constitute a commerce search versus an informational search, and nobody's just done that satisfactorily. So. So the real answer is we don't know what the percentage is. If if you wanted to have a conversation about a particular product category, you you could probably do that, but but um it's really hard to know, but directionally it's for sure true that traffic 
is going up on uh, Amazon search engine, and presumably that is at the expense of, of Google. And we certainly have seen Google do a lot of things that seem like defensive moves against Amazon. Yeah, perhaps more importantly, the dollars are moving, right? So, so um, you probably know more about this than I do, but, you know, uh, at ChannelVisor, we've seen people kind of go through this life cycle of testing a little bit on Amazon ads and then kind of like really ramping it up and then taking a lot out of the, the other, you know, yeah. obviously offline budgets, but also, you know, I think the Google budgets get starved out from that too. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, you know, Amazon's collected $10 billion in advertising fees and, and presumably that wasn't all incremental, like a bunch of that even very likely came from, from Google and Amazon. Uh, it is ironic. We've talked about this a little bit offline, but, um, while Amazon collects $10 billion in advertising fees for the Amazon platform, they actually pay for $11 billion of Google ads. They're Google's largest advertiser. And so there is this funny thing. They're like buying eyeballs from Google, and then they're monetizing them on their site. And it's it's actually a clever arbitrage because even if they break even, if they buy an ad and sell an ad and break even, uh, that causes all that those eyeballs to fly by all these Amazon products on the Amazon platform that they get to sell to for free, basically. Yeah. And sign up for prime and all that good stuff. Exactly. So, yeah. it, so, Oh, I was just gonna, one last point on that. That's kind of humorous. You, you, you talked about like the old days at, at Google where the ad team was at odds with some of the product teams. There are all these new products Google's launched that are like clearly you know, intended to be direct competitors with Amazon. And it has to be awkward that Amazon is their largest customer <laughs> that they're trying to compete with. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories about the early days where, um, you know, Amazon's pulled products in and out of Google Shopping a lot because they there's this argument of having their products in there actually makes it better. Um, to, to this day, they're pretty limited on what they put in there. I haven't done a forensic check, but they have some Kindle stuff. Zappos, um, the Quidzy guys, we're, we're still in there last I looked. But the whole Amazon catalog is not in Google Shopping. No. Um, yeah, and even then, early on, there was a famous Bezos story where he told, you know, and he was actually an angel investor in Google, I think, too. So, so, But he told the Amazon team to share no data with them at all. And, you know, so they would go buy ads, but they would never... You know, like yeah. install the pixel or give Google or Google Analytics or any insight into where what was going on behind the firewall, which I which I think is smart. Yeah, I think there's a Jeff Bezos quote that they're in the information collection business, not the information dissemination business. Yeah. So then the big picture is, uh, you know, so so I felt for a very long time Google has this existential crisis kind of facing um, with Amazon. You know, it's not going to be the end of Google, but by all accounts kind of commerce related terms is, is a really big chunk of their revenue. Some, some estimates say 30%, 40%, 20%, whatever it's, it's not immaterial. Um, and Amazon's just been siphoning that off pretty relentlessly. So, so it is interesting to see them make some news, uh, and moves here. The other one, uh, that you didn't mention is, um, so the, the buy on Google program where you actually check out on Google, which I think is a better experience for mobile, um, it previously you could only do Google pay. So then it ended up being super restricted because you said, you know, well, um, we're only going to really show the ads on Android and you have to do Google pay or Android pay or whatever that's called these days and this, that, and the other. And then suddenly, you know, and then a merchant has to go through this complicated thing. Well, now, um, in addition to making it free, they have opened it up to PayPal and then Shopify as payment platform. As well, um, so, you know, some of these moves kind of make me think, hmm, they're, they're definitely 
someone at Google has woken up and said, we need to do something about this. Uh, it definitely, though, does feel like, you know, too little, too late. And then where I kind of end up getting to is to really fight Amazon, someone's going to have to step up and build a lot of fulfillment centers because, you know, at, at, if you really start at the customer experience and you have to match Amazon's customer experience, there's there's no way around that. And this is a huge challenge with um, all these these other experiences, right? Um, Colin Sebastian, uh, who's a Wall Street analyst who's been on our show, um, he was talking about in a in a either a note or a tweet. He ordered something from Instacart Instagram for the first time, and you know the shipping was like it gave this window of two weeks from now or six weeks from now was kind of like the window. So it was like a three week window, two weeks away. Um, it felt like you know, 1999 kind of shipping levels. Um, so, so it, yeah, it's good to see Google chip away at this, but I think they got to get like, you know, someone needs to go out and start spending in $10 billion chunks if they really want to counteract the Amazon customer experience. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, it, it does. So you, you alluded to this, but, uh, Google hired this guy, Bill Reddy, to be the president of commerce at Google. And he was formerly like the COO at PayPal. Um, so an ex- experienced commerce guy, um, he, the, the memo that it was now free to list your products on Google Shopping in April came from Bill Reddy. And then the memo that we're, we're no longer charging a commission to be on Google Shopping. Uh, today was from Bill Reddy. So he, he obviously has his fingerprints on, on these moves and you look at them together and you say, oh man, Google is doing everything they can to get people to list their products in Google shopping. They're making it easier to list. They're making it less costly to list because per your point, they, they're trying to make that, that platform attractive enough and useful enough to consumers to compete with Amazon. Um, the, in addition to those two big moves, they've done some other interesting things. So one very subtle thing they did is you can now send your Amazon feed in the Amazon Merchant Center format to Google for listing on on Google Shopping. So they've reduced the friction to list your products. If you're listing them on Amazon, you already have a feed that you could choose to send to Google. So at the very least, I feel like they've made Channel Advisor's job easier, which I know we always want want that to be the case. Um, and you, you mentioned they're accepting PayPal and Shopify. They also will let you syndicate your products straight from Shopify, uh, onto Google shopping. So there's this interesting thing. Analysts keep talking about, oh, Shopify is the potential competitor to Amazon. And I, I hate that narrative. I don't think that's true. I think Amazon and Shopify are super complementary and don't really compete with each other. And, and, you know, part of the reason is because, uh, Shopify doesn't have and is likely never going to have a multi-vendor or, um, marketplace experience. But almost by default, like Google could potentially become the multi-vendor version of Shopify, right? Like the, if, if it's mm-hmm. completely frictionless to syndicate your products, uh, if, if Shopify encourages it because Shopify will actually make money on everyone that buys from Google Shopping because They'll use that that Shopify payment system, and and Shopify, you know, a lot of their revenue comes from having their own own payment processor now. So, uh, roll all that up, and it it's it's kind of interesting to watch. I totally agree with you. The Achilles heel of all these plans uh, is that that shipping experience. Um, the there's some new features in Instagram that came out this week as well. They're not that interesting, so we weren't going to cover them. But but uh, in a nutshell. 
Instagram has elevated shopping to a button on the homepage now. So there now is a shopping tab on the homepage of Instagram that's rolling out as we speak. And uh, some some journalists were asking me if I thought that was going to make a big difference. And and I had uh, the same ex- experience as Colin. I pointed out Target lists like 3,000 products on Instagram shopping that you can buy. And so I looked at a candle on Target site and that same candle on Shopify site, and it's the same price. Uh, I said Shopify. I meant on Instagram site. It's the same price, but if you buy the candle from Target, it comes with free one-day shipping. And if you buy it from Instagram, it will ship sometime in the next two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't understand. Like, it's got to be injecting in the same system, so I don't know. I just don't – I don't think they have a live OMS, so I think they just have this – like, you – I suspect if I ordered that candle from Instagram, I'd get it in two days from Target. But I think they just don't have a way to give uh, real-time shipping – information or it goes to someone they print it out it passes through six people's hands someone's the data they fax it to a store someone data enters it um a a trained pigeon uh uses the keyboard to data enter it and then your two weeks are up and now you get your package in a day you could be a product designer for a publicist that was pretty good <laughs> the things we've seen in this world of e-commerce jason those are actually not that crazy no um, so we'll, you know, we'll be watching that really closely. Um, one thing, you know, to Shopify's credit, I know you hate this, this analogy, so I'm just going to use it a lot. They That's are competing smart. with Amazon because they are the only people that have kind of the guts to go build a fulfillment center, right? So they've got this, um, what do they call it? I think fulfill by Shopify. Is yeah. that, yeah. Um, and as best I know, they've actually built a fulfillment center. So, and, you know, since they're Canadian, they probably have two. I imagine they have one in Canada and one here. I I, I don't know. Do you know? I don't. I like. thought there was speculation that it was more than one. Like I I think they are. And it's complicated because I the speculation I've seen is that it's blended. Like that they have some three PL partners that that they're relying on to help uh, fulfill, but that they own more than one of their own facilities. And they did buy a a robotic picking company. So like they they have some of their own technology. Cool. Uh, another thing that was interesting um, that got a lot of uh, noise on Twitter was a uh, Goldman had a new report. And uh, this was interesting because a lot of these Wall Street analysts, they'll have a retail analyst, an Amazon analyst, a online, offline, U.S., and then this kind of thing. And this is for the first time Goldman really comprehensively got all their teams together globally. And uh, the, you know, the, 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 Impetus for this was to understand the, the COVID-19 impact on everything. Um, and it was pretty interesting. So, so let's, you know, let's cover the U.S. first. So the way they formatted this was they said, here's kind of like the old kind of thinking and here's our updated post-pandemic kind of. So pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. So let's look at 2020. So in the U.S., pre-pandemic, they were thinking e-commerce. Um, and then uh, I know we'd like to be really specific. This excludes travel and autos, So, um, but it would include tickets and events and those kinds of things. Um, but no autos and no travel. So um, so they had the U.S. growing at 14% uh, year over year from 19 to 20, uh, 14.6. That's e-commerce growing at 14.6. Yep. Yep, e-commerce. And then 2020 to 2021, kind of flat 14.4. And then 20, 
2021 to 2022, 14%. So they're now saying COVID has effectively doubled the growth rate. So they're expecting um, 29% from 2019 to 2020. Um, and then, you know, what's really interesting is there's this big debate uh, amongst folks in the e-commerce landscape. Uh, I imagine if you had been physically at a NRF event, this would have been the the kind of the, the back alley the, the, the hallway talk, um, you know, everyone's in the online world is excited. We've gotten this surge of activity. The big question is how much is going to stick? Well, they, they kind of took a shot at this, which is kind of interesting. So they're saying we've got this surge from, uh, you know, an expected 14.6 to 29%. And then uh, I should also say they, they go out and they grab all the data we talk about on the show. So they, they take the commerce data, the com score data, the e-marketer data, I think they have like Forrester data in the mix. And then they also have access to a lot of data, um, you know, from these credit card receipts and all these things. And all that, uh, they say in the note, was kind of inputted into this this model, which is interesting. So it's, it's this amalgam of all these things that they look at. Um, but then what they're saying is it actually is going to stay pretty elevated, not at this 29% growth rate. But, you know, next year, for example, instead of the 14.4, they were thinking pre-pandemic, they're going to, they're saying it will grow seven. 17% year over year. And that's really impressive coming off of a 29% year. Um, you know, a lot of people were like, wow, I thought it would be more, um, you know, it, it, they kind of viewed it as going down year over year, but, but no, it's actually, you know, to do 17% on top of 29 is pretty impressive. Most times if you had this blip, you would actually go negative the next year because, you know, you would, you would effectively be comping against this really, really big previous year number. Uh, so, so that was interesting. And I, I thought, you know, it was pretty, I hadn't seen anyone really take a shot at it. So, so I, I thought it was kind of thought provoking to think through, you know, how much of this is going to stick and be sustained um, and build new habits versus kind of receding to previous habits. What insights did you gather? Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, so it's super interesting. Um, and my biggest takeaway is, uh, we we don't know, and smart people disagree, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Because uh, I I consumed this as soon as it came out, and then two days later, eMarketer published what they call their 2020 U.S. category level forecast. So they had they had previously published a an updated COVID forecast for the top line numbers, and and uh, this week they published this much deeper dive that like they forecast what they think is going to happen in e-commerce in the U.S. category by category. Um, and so it's a very similar methodology. Like they say in the front of the report, we have 179 data sources, which include all the same ones you mentioned. And so we, we consume over 10,000 individual metrics. We synthesize all those to build this like complicated forecast model. And um, in some ways directionally similar, but in some ways – meaningfully different. So the the top line from eMarketer is um and and what what makes this hard to be perfect apples to apples is of course eMarketer and and uh Goldman don't have the same definition of retail. Um mm -hmm. so by the strictest definition of retail and comscore which excludes food, restaurant, tickets, auto and gas, um they're, they're saying um, that e-commerce will grow 18% this year versus last year, which was, uh, I want to say their previous forecast was like 12 or 13%. So um, a meaningful uptick. They Unlike Goldman, they also forecast retail, and they actually forecast brick-and-mortar retail would be down 14%, which is 
a historic drop. Um, and so that all nets out to U.S. retail online and offline will be down uh, a little over 10% for the year. So that's the Debbie Debbie Downer top line. What's interesting to me is um, the 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 shape of their forecast is also different than the Goldman one. So they're basically saying uh, they give three forecasts. They they give the strict definition of retail that excludes food and gas, and they they concede that that's um, when you're talking about e-commerce. That's not really fair because you know, people are buying a meaningful amount of food online now, right? Um, gas, the argument is no one buys gas online. Um, and so that's why you would exclude that. Uh, but they say, like, if you want to take cars and, uh, and gas out, um, we'll give you this, uh, this bigger number. And if you want to take cars, gas, food, and beverage out, we'll give you an even bigger number. So the one that's most similar to Goldman is the excluding cars and gas. So that's going to be... 20% growth in 2020, and then they're predicting 20.7% growth in 2021 and 22% growth in 2022. So they're actually, the intuitively, the Goldwyn one makes more sense, right? That you'd see a big spike this year when the brick-and-mortar stores are closed for a long time. Um, presuming that's not going to be the case next year, you would expect some of that to come back. But the, the e-marketer uh, forecast has them um, growing every year, which is... Interesting, and um, and they do have a pretty granular forecast that makes it more credible. So they do show like food having that same shape that Goldman's predicting, where it went way up and then it goes down. But they show other things like apparel um, is way down this year online and in store, and it's it starts to creep back up online in the next years. And intuitively, that kind of makes sense. So they aggregate all those categories together, and they get this this different snapshot. Uh, what's what's interesting to me is just looking at those sales as a percentage of total retail. Since they're estimating brick and mortar, you can you can see how big a chunk e-commerce is. And again, by the strictest definition of retail, 2020, 14 percent of all 14.5 um, percent of all sales are online. To put that in perspective, 2019 was 11 percent by that definition. So that's a big jump. Um, yeah. If if you uh, pull the car and gas out, 20% of all sales are online. And just for fun, if you pull grocery cars and gas out, 29% of all retail sales are online this year. So that's... Is that a U.S. number? Yeah, that's or U.S. That's global? U.S., okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, because Goldman has 18% this year. Um, and they don't have gas or autos, but they do have grocery. Um, so I guess it would be higher if you took grocery out. Yeah. And then... Uh, because that's a small, you know, it, it's it had a huge growth, but it's still under index compared to like electronics or something, obviously. Um, but then, uh, you know, last year they had 14.8. So you do see this like huge step function where we we're kind of like ticking along at 1%, and then we just like surge 4%. And then they show it going to 21%, 24, 27 by 2023. The other thing I like is they have a table that has all the different countries, and you kind of think, well, what's our, you know, what's the high water mark? And you look down this chart and you see South Korea 45%, and you're like, wow. You know, that's that's pretty crazy. And then they have China at 36%. I always thought China would be higher than that, but that's Yeah, they, I've they seen pre-COVID, that, and again, everybody has a different definition, so it's really hard. And data from China is is harder. Um, but the numbers I see tend to be that e-commerce in China pre-COVID was 38, and now it's in the 40s. Yeah. 
the just a super high level thought um a framework i found useful when we employed this the in the last episode in a way we do this every year with our prediction show yeah. when when you have these different opinions instead of arguing in the time frame of now i found it i have historically found it and this is true for my own companies and stuff it's interesting to make predictions, track those, and then learn from that experience of, oh, gee, I was really wrong. Why was I wrong? What was I looking at? It was wrong. What did this other opinion look at? So so it's kind of cool to have the Goldman and Ecom and eMarketer kind of off a little bit. So then we can kind of see, you know, which of these is a better, you know, predictor and what can we learn from those predictions that that we can feed back into our models of how we think about these things. Yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, um, both are super thorough methodologies. So these are not like, you know, just just uh, throwaway forecasts that people whipped up, right? Like, Yeah. And then they had the last one, last little tidbit on the Goldman I wanted to highlight is they do have some trend data um, where they look at kind of how did things do kind of pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic. So the categories that over-indexed due to the pandemic are – uh, furniture and appliances, that's kind of that nesting or cocooning thing going on. CPG, uh, which, uh, you know, you follow closely is largely people switching their grocery habits. Um, home and garden is interesting. So a lot of people are, because they're sheltering in place, they're like, you know, I could use some fresh paint in here with, uh, or, you know, fix that thing that's been kind of an annoyance. Um, then you have a lot of categories that are kind of neutral to negative, like uh, we've talked a lot about apparel and accessories. Biggest losers, event tickets, um, and then toys. And this was weird because I've seen all these other articles that toy sales are surging. Um, so I, I couldn't reconcile the toy one. Do you have a point of view on toys? I don't. The eMarketer showed toys uh, were, were one of the fastest gainers online. So they said 36% of toys yeah. were sold online pre-COVID. So this is February 2020. They Their estimate was 36%. And May 2020, they said 47% of all toys were sold online. So that's one of the biggest jumps. Yeah, Goldman shows, um, you know, toys going from kind of a inline growth of 6% before the pandemic to a 45% decline. So that 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 is where I think they probably differ the most and where I would kind of circle this one and say, hmm, that, that smells a little weird. Um, you know, I've, I've read all these, you know, like Hasbro, I think, I think it was Hasbro was saying they just haven't been able to keep up for the demand of coming direct to their website and target has been selling through toys at a, a pretty good clip. So that makes more sense to me. If, if your kids are, you know, I don't have toy age kids, but you certainly do. And I imagine you're buying toys at a frenetic pace to keep, keep your son occupied. I don't because <laughs> uncle Scott just keeps sending him new star Wars stuff. So that's yeah, actually- one of us. Yeah. Well, between the two of us. We do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's very appreciative. You and he are very aligned on interests. Which either yes. means he's very mature for his age, or there's another hypothesis that I won't share. He is a super mature young man. Exactly. Unlike his father. Yeah, yeah. The bar is Cool. Low. Unfortunately, uh, another news item was another bankruptcy. And, um, you know, you keep a slide uh, that, that has been following these bankruptcies, and that is a very full slide. Yeah, my designer is pissed because, like, every time they redesign it, I'm like, can you... S- squeeze everything together a little bit more. <laughs> I have to throw Asina on there. And yeah, it's rough. Yeah. So Asina filed chapter 11 and remind us what all they own. Yeah. So Asina is a big house of brands. Um, Ann Taylor would be one of their big brands. Uh, Catherine's Dress Barn is a brand they actually closed a little earlier this year, but that was one of their big brands. 
they also own Lane Bryant, which is a plus size brand. So yeah, um, and they they probably have thirty brands in the portfolio, and they're they're mostly mall based apparel, and they were significantly distressed before COVID, and so they uh, it, it had been a family run business. Um, the Jaffrey's like grants the son of the founder of Dress Barn was the CEO for a long time and he stepped down earlier this year. And so they were trying to do a, a turnaround, uh, you know, facing a lot of headwinds as a mall based uh, apparel retailer. And then, you know, COVID just made that impossible. So so they had to declare bankruptcy. They they expect to do a reorganization. They're, they're definitely going to. Uh, you know, call some brands and call some stores and, and try to reopen and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, I saw another report, um, that we are year to date at 7,430 store closures, which is more than half of last year, which I guess we're at half of the year. Um, last year was 12,370. So we're, we're pacing at probably 10 to 20%. But, yep. and if you um, just count flags that went bankrupt, like we've had 25 this year, uh, we had 20 all of last year. So there's more, more yeah. brands that closed as well or bankruptcy. Yeah. And a lot of times these, um, you know, these store, you know, you have the sequence of bankruptcy. There's a period of time where they have to go through the process. That's all slowed down due to COVID and then they close stores. So this is the store number should lag the bankruptcy number. I would imagine unless they don't start counting those upon announcement. They, they wait for the actual a date in a store to come in. I think that it has to be kind of a, you know, a known thing. Yeah. And of course, retail again, um, or mall again, or whatever you want to call it, is bigger than just those bankrupts. So a lot of healthy retailers are taking the opportunity to dramatically close stores, right? So Nordstrom is closing 17 mainline stores. There's what I'll call some hidden bankruptcies. Microsoft had 100 stores, and they're closing all of them. They're getting out of brick and mortar retail, right? And so that's not a bankruptcy, because the rest of Microsoft is pretty vibrant. But, but uh, there's a awful lot of stores closing uh one that is bankrupt that had a big announcement today was neiman marcus um so they're in bankruptcy we knew they were going to close some stores but the and one that was speculated to be on that list and was confirmed today is they're closing what um, their newest flagship store in hudson yard that literally just opened grand opened a year ago so yeah that's 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 crazy yeah (laughs) Like, that's like I, a big anchor. Like the whole thing's designed around that. that yeah, unit. it's the top floor of this entire mall. So it's a huge deal, the Hudson Yard, and and now's an awesome time to find a new tenant. Um, <laughs> but on like wow. the cost to open that store, like they can't, they couldn't have come close to recovering the cost to open that store, and so to close it is just like it's it's crushingly heartbreaking. And then here, like a. A slight little bitter irony, um, as as all these stores were closing in malls before COVID, uh, the big play if you were a mall owner was um, let's get more mixed use, let's open condos, um, but most of all, uh, let's open gyms and restaurants. So, guess what? The only two categories to do worse than retail is in COVID. Yeah, gyms and restaurants. <laughs> exactly. So it's yeah. pretty pretty rough. Yeah, tough times. One thing I wanted to ask you about in this topic of Mulligan is one of the mall operators, Simon Properties, is buying a lot of these these kind of Chapter 11 uh, retailers who are essentially their customers. So they're kind of buying their customers. Um, and the thing that kind of 
as an e-commerce guy that blows my mind is there's a physicality here that is much more complicated, right? So, so let's say you end up with three or four of these retail, um, these fashion uh, brands, they effectively compete with each other. So how do you reconcile that? And then also now don't you own properties in other malls who are your competitors and you're paying rent to your competitors? Um, what, what's your, what's your thought on that whole incestuous mix? Yeah. So my, my perception and I'm, I'm far from a real estate expert is these are not strategic investments on the part of mall operators that say like, Oh man, uh, Aerosol could be super profitable and uh and we want to own it and turn it around and run it at a huge profit um they're protecting their rent and they're protecting their tenant agreements with other other tenants like one of the problems is when vacancies start opening up and particularly when anchors start opening up um a lot of these other tenants have these co-tenancy agreements like you're paying expensive rent and all kinds of extra fees to a mall because there's a ton of traffic in the mall, right? And when the Apple store leaves the mall, um, there's way less traffic and everyone makes less money. And so a lot of the leases have clauses that when the the anchor stores close or when too, min- or too much of the mall is vacant, um, that they don't have to pay rent or have to pay less rent or can break their ridiculous 10-year lease. Um, and so I uh, I think it's less like Simon saying like, man, this is a super strategic investment and we're buying it because we think we know how to run retail and more uh, that some of these retailers that have a big footprint in their malls, they they need to keep those those stores occupied, even if they're not operated profitably. So um, this this first one back in uh, 2016, uh, Simon got together with Brookfield and they said, hey, together we have most of the the aerospot uh I always say it wrong, do you uh Aeropostal, sorry. Um Aeropostal E. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's, it's bad news when you're when you're turning to the guy from North Carolina for pronunciation <laughs> help. Um Aeropostal. Yeah. Aeropistol. Uh, Aeropistol. Um yeah, you guys turn everything into a gun there. That's crazy. Sir uh, La Table. Exactly. Also bankrupt, yeah. Um so I, I think they bought them to sort of protect that that lease, and I, I haven't seen a lot of data that they've like dramatically turned it around or changed the operational model. And so then this year, uh, Forever Twenty One like is an anchor for a bunch of these malls, and so there was a lot of speculation, and and it seems like they they made an investment to try to keep some of the Forever Twenty Ones open. But I, I feel per your point, the more they they do that the the returns become diminishing right like you you know if they're not profitable and you own it it's a anchor on on your overall enterprise um profits and you're you're buying these properties that are you know potentially competing with each other right and so it's it's now the big thing whenever a big mall um brand is at risk of closing the rumor is that the mall owner is going to invest in it because they're they have the most interest in keeping it as a growing concern. And so that's a ongoing rumor about JCPenney stores that are closing or if JCPenney isn't able to, to reorganize out of their bankruptcy. Um, it, it also comes up a lot. Uh, I've, I've lost track of the names of all the entities, but you know, there was this big fight about, um, the Victoria's Secret brands. And when a bunch of them were going to close, they're actually like the, second largest tenant in most of the malls in in the US. And so that would be a big hit. So there were rumors about that. 
But um, the economic analysts I have uh, read feel like they're not going to make a lot more of these investments because it's, it's going to be increasingly challenging for them. And their point was there's no way they could absorb JCPenney. Like it just, like it just, it, it just wouldn't work. Yes. So we'll have to I find it that. interesting though, that they've got a, a much better balance sheet than, um, than any of their customers. <laughs> so, so I don't know how the mall operators escaped this high, kind of high leverage kind of thing, but Apparently they did, but the yeah. retailers didn't. So my kind of my original there. retail mentor Wayne Heising, I was a big fan of buying something once and renting it forever. Turns out to be a pretty profitable model. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Um, then was that Blockbuster? That was yeah. So you okay. buy a movie for <laughs> for thirty bucks and you rent it thirty times for three bucks. It turns out that's a good business. And then you get late fees. Yeah, we don't have. To and then you all ignore that. Netflix, and then they crush you. Uh, um, okay, no. okay. So now I got to defend Blockbuster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we started Blockbuster. Seven years later, we sold it to Viacom for $9 billion in 1994, which would be $15 billion today. Netflix wasn't worth close to $15 billion in their first seven years of operation. So started the company, hugely monetized it, got the heck out, and some much later owner-operators screwed the pooch on Netflix. But like to be clear, the entrepreneur that started Blockbuster was brilliant and did quite well. Okay. The other big news that we want to cover is Big Commerce. So they released their S1. So they're going I see what public. you did there with the big big by the way. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the debate over Netflix and Blockbuster. That's, okay. Yeah. We'll save that one. I, I, you can uh you can rest that uh Blockbuster one. Uh, the you can see how large I'm living on my blockbuster money, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, this this probably have some DVDs, probably still need to return. The uh, the good news is no one's there to collect the late fees. The so the big commerce S1 dropped, and S1's, uh, as you know, one of my weird hobbies is I love to read these things, and this was a good one. Um, the, the shame here is BigCommerce uh, appears to be a great company when you read through it. Um, and if they had gone public in the in a world where Shopify didn't exist, then uh, it would be much easier for them. But everyone's comparing them to Shopify. Um, and the, you know, not only that, they're comparing them to Shopify today when they really should be compared to Shopify like 2014, so a pre-IPO Shopify. Because you know when you go public, it really... Um, can add a lot of fuel to the fire because you've got this access to capital that's a lot, you know, uh, you know, bigger, deeper than than kind of the private capital. Um, so, so just some highlights. So, Big Commerce is doing uh, annualized 112 million, growing 22 percent year over year. Um, and this is all 2019 numbers. Um, and then, you know, what you have to do in a in an S one is keep updating it with amended numbers. I'll get to those in a second. Um, one one standout is their gross margin is seventy six percent. Shopify, um, twenty fourteen was fifty nine percent gross margins, uh, and then uh, now those have actually gone down to fifty five percent, which is kind of interesting. But it kind of indicates maybe there is a um, you know. So I think payments. The more payments you do, the lower your gross margins because you're you're kind of skimming. So you're running like three percent through, um, but your cogs is like two point five. So so that can put a lot of pressure on the gross margins, um, things like that. So, uh, but anyway, it feels like much more of a SaaS business. That's kind of 76% gross margins. 
Um, and they are still losing money, but you know they're clearly on this path to profitability, just like Shopify was in 2014, and ultimately got there, and it's been quite profitable. Um, so the the most probably the most interesting thing is everyone's using it as a read to the Shopify. So, for example, um, you know because they're not public yet and they have to update their S1, we have this view into uh, March, April, and May, um, which is very everyone's very curious about how Shopify did in in those. We know March, but we don't know April, May, so it's a view into Q2. Um, and March, they again they're they're kind of. Pre-pandemic growth rate was 22% at big commerce. March, it bumped up to 33%. April, 106%. May, 86%. So a lot of people are taking that. You've probably noticed Shopify's stock has gone on a bit of a run. Um, it's kind of ironic because I think a lot of people are using this S1 and they're reading in and saying, well, if big commerce did 106, 86 for April and May, let's say June was a step down at 75%. That's like 90% growth annualized that would just like blow people's minds so um so it's gonna be interesting to see what kind of happens shopify's growth rate is about 54 percent. so so a lot of people are kind of reading into the big commerce s1 that shopify is going to have a quarter where they effectively double their growth rate and um so that's gonna be really interesting to watch and see what happens as that plays out are they overreading that or not um, so then a couple other, the other thing I would mention to folks is it's really good to read these things because, um, the, the, the way to read an S one, um, is unless you're a financial, like a Warren Buffett, he always starts at the back, the, the boring financial disclosures and, and, you know, the audit and then works forward. I like to read the management's, um, discussion and analysis called the MDNA section. So, so unfortunately the way. You know, the way the lawyers want you to write an S1 is kind of what I would call a poop sandwich. So you have to start out and you essentially say, in a very boring way, here's our business. And then you kind of almost have to say, here's kind of like why it sucks. And then you, then you have to say, but here's some good little pieces to think about. And then again, you have to kind of come and then this is the risk factors. Then you have to kind of say, yeah. And again, it kind of sucks. And what you're doing there is you're, you're protecting yourself from making any forward looking statements or anything that an investor could sue you for down the road. So, so you have to kind of like, um, reading these things can be very boring if you start at the front because you're going through the the kind of the, the cover your butt side of it. So getting to that MDNA is really good. And, and I always like to hear because because actually, you know, having done one of these, you actually write that and yeah, it goes through refinement, but you really kind of need to write it because no one else can write that for you. So it's really the management team really putting down on paper their words of how they're they're doing the business. And, and I thought the big commerce one was was very good. Um, the other thing that I love to do is um, you know, when Enron imploded, it caused all this new regulations to come out. One of those is regulation FD, which is full disclosure. So ever since then, everyone's roadshow actually gets published out there in a video. Um, now this is, it's weird because I find most people don't know about this. Um, and they don't, they don't know to watch these. The, the thing that's tricky though is the video has to be out there while you're on your roadshow. And then most companies take it down because you don't really want that artifact. So there's this window of usually a week, sometimes two weeks, sometimes three days where that roadshow is up. Um, and I've been watching every day for big commerce. It usually will start to, um, they'll update the S1 with some new data and then start. I imagine next week or the week after I'll let, um, I'll try to bring it up on the podcast, but I'll definitely tweet when it goes up. 
Um, and it's at this really arcane website called Retail Roadshow where you can go watch these things. So, so I'm, I'm eager to watch this one because it's going to be kind of interesting to see. Some people do kind of a, like the Uber one was really good. It was kind of like hyper, it felt like a Super Bowl, yeah. an hour some long have Super very Bowl. Very high commercial. production value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some have high production. And then some, you know, most of the ones in the e commerce category are super low production where, you know, yeah. they're, they're almost they're like saving a the money Shark for Tank VC level pitch, which, which I, prefer because you kind of get to the meat and potatoes. So I'm, I'm going to watch for that um, and, and see how they present on that and see uh, you know what that looks like. So, so that was my takeaways. Did you have anything from big commerce you wanted to uh, share? A few little quick bits. First of all, I feel like Warren Buffett probably starts at the end because he's a very old man and he doesn't know how much more time he has. Ooh, could be yeah. just a theory. Um, and I also like to read them, but I'm weirder than you. I like to start at the risk factors because I feel like there's just so much positivity in my life right now <laughs> that I you're such an Eeyore. Yeah, that I just I just, <laughs> just need to bring it down. And I, you tell me if I'm wrong, but unlike the 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 sections that like each each entrepreneur clearly does right for themselves, I'm pretty sure the risk factors are a popular boilerplate item. Because they tend to have like all ten plagues in them, for example. <laughs> yeah, you've got to talk about cybersecurity. You could have an internet outage. You've got a lot of competitors. Yeah. and then uh, nowadays they're just one, one bullet called yep. like Amazon, right? Like, yes, you got to have an Amazon bullet in there. Exactly. Um, so a couple of things that were interesting to me in looking through the S one. So like you didn't mention it, but so they are tiny compared to Shopify today. They're like one seventeenth the size. Uh, of Shopify, but their business is more different than Shopify than people might realize. So one thing, the revenue per account is much higher. So there's a, you know, a common narrative that they're, they're uh, more mid tier brands tend to use big commerce and they're a little closer to enterprise and Shopify tends to be a long, like the long tail and a lot of startups. Um, and, the this S one kind of bears bears that out. Like the they're they have far fewer clients. They're making more revenue per client, but also the mix of the revenue is quite a bit different. You alluded to it a little bit in the payments, but what's interesting is there's there's recurring revenue, which are the fees they collect for hosting, right? Like the 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 fundamental charges you have for using their platform, and then there are these variable fees, which are not guaranteed to be recurring, but for things like uh, fulfillment and the payment fees when you use Shopify's ecosystem. And the overwhelming majority of Shopify's revenue come from fees, not recurring. So the despite the fact that they're a SaaS company, their recurring revenue is a minority of their, their revenue. Um, and that's way less true on Shopify. Shop, the bulk of Shopify's revenue is coming from... You mean big commerce? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. It, the opposite is true of big commerce. The bulk of their revenue is coming from charging uh, rent for this platform, um, SaaS platform that you're getting. And they seem to be making a lot less from, from supplement. They seem, they have much less supplemental services. So that's, that's interesting. Um, the thing we always, we never know about Shopify that we're always really eager to tell and the, the big commerce doesn't give us any insight is like, what's the churn? Like they have all these clients, but you know how many of them are are economically meaningful and how many are still active. Um, but in some ways, the big commerce model feels, sa- although much smaller, safer because they have these 
clients that are more locked in and and it's a you know more more um material to their to their business yeah um, you know what you know you just did a talk on this and I don't want to do any spoilers. Yeah. We're going to do a deep dive, but Magento just really doesn't come up in the conversation where it's like, they just fell off the face of the earth. I don't know if that's just me or, or have they have these hosted platforms just really displaced them everywhere? Yes. And no, um, they, I, they still come up a lot with me. Like, so they're owned by Adobe. And so, you know, you're starting to hear people say Adobe instead of Magento. Um, the analyst just uh so Forrester just published their wave and and Adobe's a leader in the wave, which is Magento. Um and uh um Gardner is about to publish their wave. Um and I can't confirm or deny that I've seen it, but you'll you'll probably see them in that too. Um the I, I would definitely say like that a lot of uh, Magento is uh, at the moment feels to me like our past their prime. Like they, they, um, they were the, the long tail solution before Shopify and uh, nobody's successfully moved a bunch of those, those clients up market or to newer products. Um, and so it does feel like they're losing momentum in that regard. Adobe has a lot of juice. So maybe, you know, Adobe will be able to turn them around. We'll, we'll have to see, but for sure the future is, cloud native platforms and i'm saying cloud native as distinct from like just putting your product on the cloud um so magento is an example of adobe and others have put magento on the cloud by just you know running a private instance of magento on a on a virtual server instead of a an on-premise server but it's not really service-based and it's it, it it has a lot of problems whereas big commerce shopify uh and and salesforce are are cloud native solutions and a lot of the newer platforms that are in the market are all cloud native nothing like everything is service-based and so yeah uh i, I feel like they're i, I wouldn't if, if magento were a separate stock i would not be buying it yeah all right anything else on big commerce Nope, nope. I think that's going to be a good place to wrap. Uh, we have uh, used up more of our time, given that we have two shows this week, than uh, uh, I had expected to. But as always, if uh, there's something that piqued your interest, uh, let us know on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, please, please, please jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. Thanks, everyone. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 